Matthew chapter three. We have uh, here in our text tonight, um, a fun part of the story. You might wonder why I have a picture of the Tualatin River <laughs> behind my uh, artwork. Does anybody know why? Exactly, it's not the Tualatin. It's the Jordan River. That there is the mighty Jordan River. Uh, you thought it was the Tualatin, didn't you? My kids, when they were little, they said, Daddy, the Toiletin River. And I'm like, pretty much. <laughs> uh, well, you'll see why we have that as one of our marks uh, of our study here. We're, some of these pictures on this Matthew graphic is gonna be representation of where we're at in the study of the gospel, so kind of fun. Um, there was a candidate for church membership who went into the board and they were gonna interview him to see if he was a you know, viable member you know, for the church. Um, <laughs> and they asked, uh, what part of the Bible do you like the best? And he said, um, I like the New Testament. Oh, the New Testament. Uh, then, then what book of the New Testament is your favorite? And a little bead of sweat started coming down his brow and he said, I like the book of parables. <laughs> oh. What parables do you like? What's your favorite parable? And man, he, by this time, he was just kind of shaken, you know, nervous. And, and he said, well, my favorite parable, once upon a time, there was a man who went down from Jerusalem into Jericho and fell among thieves. And the thorns grew up and choked the man. <laughs> and he went on and met the queen of Sheba and she gave the man, sir, a thousand talents of silver and a hundred changes of raiment. <laughs> and he got in his chariot and drove furiously. And he was driving along under a big tree when his hair got caught in the limb and left him hanging there. And he hung there for many days and many nights when the ravens suddenly brought him food. <laughs> but, um, and one night after he was hanging there, he was sleeping, his wife Delilah came and cut his hair off and he fell on stony ground and it began to rain and it rained 40 days and 40 nights and he hid himself in a cave. Later, he went on and met the man who said, come, take supper with me. But he said, I can't come in for I have married a wife. And the man went out into the highways and hedges and compelled him to come in. He then went to Jerusalem and saw Queen, of, Queen Jezebel sitting high and lifted up in a window on the wall. And when she saw him, she laughed and said, throw her down out of there. And so they threw her down and they said, throw her down again. And they threw her down 70 times seven. And the fragments which they picked up filled the 12 baskets full. <laughs> now whose wife will she be in the day of judgment? <laughs> the membership committee agreed. This man was indeed a knowledgeable candidate and they let him in. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. He kind of captured the whole Bible there, uh, but, um, but just not a parable. Uh, we, we'll call that one a terrible. Uh, but, but uh, tonight, I'm thankful for all of you willing to do some work in the Bible. I, I do uh, marvel at some of the things people just don't know. I mean, I sometimes forget, because I've kind of been studying the Bible since I was a little kid. And, and I take for granted, I think, the good Bible teaching I've had available to me over the years. And, 
You know, um, uh, Babylon B, I'm gonna have to do something I think on Sundays about talking about why we stand during worship. I, just stuff like this catches my eye. Did you see the Babylon's B's thing today about the worship leader, you know, uh, getting ready to talk about the new song that he wrote and, and the congregation had to prepare themselves to stand for seven whole minutes, you know, during the new song and stuff. Well, then you read the thread after that and people are like, yeah, why do we stand in church? People, you know, what, where did that, what a stupid idea, people stand. And you know, this, the thread afterwards that people were talking about, I thought, oh man. Uh, it's just kind of funny. Well, Nehemiah says, stand up and bless the Lord your God who is exalted. Um, like in the Bible, it actually says when you worship, one of the things we get to do in honor of the Lord is standing. And, and hopefully, by the way, if you're wondering about stuff at Athey Creek, don't, don't just ask somebody online, why does Athey Creek do this or that? Or that? You might wanna search the scriptures because we're trying to be the church that does everything really that the Bible actually says we're supposed to do. And we don't add to it, we don't take away from it. We really try to hit as, as perfectly on spot as we can. Now, are we perfect? No, uh, but that's the goal at least. Um, but the only way, you know, I, I was just kind of shocked at all the people talking and none of them really knew what the Bible said about something as basic, basic as why we stand in church. And, um, and, and there's only a million of those kind of topics we could talk about. Um, but that's why I think it's rewarding when you go through the Bible, you start to get why we do what we do and what we're supposed to be doing and thinking and how we're to behave. Like there's so much the Bible gives us. And I think Wednesday night Bible study, man, it's the meat and potatoes of what you're supposed to do as a Christian. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's, that's what we as Christians are called to do. So tonight we get to dive into the topic of John the Baptist as we enter in here to uh, the book of Matthew. Um, and before we do that, you know, one of the things that's kind of fun about John the Baptist, just getting right out of the gate, there's some things about him that we need to sort of remember as we get into this topic, because you might miss this, but one of the things, um, he really was the greatest. We know that, I'm just gonna jump ahead and show you a scripture from Matthew 11:11. 11, 11 where there in Matthew 11, it says, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So, you know, this idea of Jesus saying, John the Baptist was the greatest man that was ever born among women, which is all of humanity. Remember Muhammad Ali, who used to say, I am the greatest. And I always think, uh, nope. <laughs> John the Baptist actually was, as it turns out. That's what Jesus said. I remember the story of, John, of, of um, Muhammad Ali was, you know, in an airplane getting ready to go to some fight in public, you know, 747 or whatever. And the flight attendant came up and said, Mr. Ali, you know, you need to put on your seat belts. And he said, Superman don't need no safety belt. That's what he said. He said that to her. And, and, and she said, Superman doesn't need an airplane either. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good comeback, actually. Uh, <laughs> but but um, one of the things you need to note is um, just, just in your back of your head, number one, John the Baptist was the greatest man ever born among women. And number two, one thing that I'd like to dabble in a little bit as we start is John the Baptist, as it turns out, is one of the last of the prophets as we know them in the Old Testament. What? Uh, this is important. I talk about this and every time I mention this, uh, people are... People get up in a tizzy and I'll tell you why. Some of you were raised that there were prophets in your church when you were growing up and prophet so-and-so and prophet other, you know, other person and all that. And here's the thing. Uh, there's a lot of confusion on this. Um, jot this down in your notes, Luke 16, 16, when Jesus was talking about John the Baptist, um, he said, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and to every man presseth into it. What's Jesus saying there? Um, 
there's different times of periods. Uh, in fact, the Old Testament, you can kind of break the Old Testament, as it turns out, into four major categories. You've got the Pentateuch, the first five books, or the Torah, written by Moses, and uh, that's uh, the law, sometimes referred to as the law. And then after the Pentateuch, the second division, you got books of history. Uh, those are the stories, you know, uh, you know, uh, of the, the kings and the chronicles and, and all the, the stories about how, you know, north and south Israel went to battle, all that stuff, the history, books of history. The third section of the Old Testament is the, the, um, the poetry. Some people call them the writings or the poetry, um, you know, the Psalms and the Proverbs and what have you. But then you get into the prophets and uh, you could divide those into two, uh, major and minor, but I'm just gonna call them the prophets because that's the way the Bible itself handles it. The law and the prophets is the way the Bible puts it. But these Old Testament prophets were men and women. Remember Deborah was a prophetess? Um, uh, Huldah was a prophetess? There was different prophetesses even, but in the Old Testament, um, they spoke God's word to the people on behalf of God. Now, why did they have that? Well, they didn't have the Bible in their hands like we did. Uh, you know, even if they did have a scroll of the Pentateuch, um, that was very rare. Not everybody had one of those. Uh, uh, that, that wasn't like they had printing presses and stuff, so everybody had a scroll in their house. It wasn't like that. So the prophets had to speak to the people, and that's how God gave his word to the people, the Old Testament prophets. And that did include, by the way, speaking about future events in, in words of prophecy, as we know them, you know, end times prophecy or the, the falling or pending doom of Jerusalem or those kinds of futuristic prophecies. The prophets did do the foretelling of future, if you would, um, because God gave them. He knows, knows the beginning from the end. But in the New Testament, Jesus kind of says, John the Baptist was the last of those guys. Now, by the way, this would have been a kind of a strange thing for them because there hadn't really been a prophet since, you know, the end of our story in the Old Testament, Malachi. For 400 years, there wasn't a prophet until John the Baptist. And John the Baptist comes along and people are like, whoa, this guy, he's, he's a strange dude. But he reminded the people of the Old Testament prophets. And I'll show you why here in a second. But then, you know, of course, then there's the New Testament, which is uh, everything changed after John the Baptist finished his prophetic ministry as a prophet. And then Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave. Um, now this is important to understand. So the law and the prophets were until John. That, that, that whole period is now over once Jesus comes into the story. Um, now uh, you say, well, Brett, if, if John the Baptist was the last of the prophets, then who are the prophets today? Well, I'm gonna say this and don't be stumbled by this. There are no official prophets today. Well, Brett, I have the gift of prophecy. No, you don't. I'm sure I do, I've, I've spoken a word of prophecy. Yes, you did, but you're not a prophet. Uh, what do you mean, Brett? Well, here's the deal, you gotta read your Bible. And in the New Testament, um, you know, there's a, there's a new sort of way that the Lord uses the prophetic ministry. It's no longer uh, someone who is called specifically to prophecy. And by the way, people make the same mistake with this idea of healing. Have you ever heard somebody say, I have the holy anointing of healing? Um, you know, uh, whether you're talking about Benny Hinn or some of these guys that claim to be healers. Um, they are not. Those, those are, there are no such thing as people who have the gift of healing. Wait a minute, Brett, do you not believe in healing? Of course I do. But here's the difference. The Lord could give any one of you in this room a gift of healing at any time. 
You don't have the gift of healing. And, and by the way, if you're curious about this, I did a deeper study on this. Uh, we did a series on the Holy Spirit years ago. That's, that's, I, I always refer to it because it's kind of locks in some of these ideas, but look up 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And when it says now concerning spiritual gifts and the word gifts is in italics there, which means that it's, it was added by the translators. But the idea is it says concerning spiritual things is the idea. The Lord says there's gonna be some who will be given gifts of prophecy, healing, and there's other manifestations of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, discerning of spirits. There's, there's certain things where the Holy Spirit through his church will give you and I certain gifts at any given time. So if you're praying for someone who's got a, you know, cancer and you're saying, oh Lord, would you please heal this person? What happens if that person gets healed? Do you have the holy anointing? Should you start a TV show? No. Um, you were given by the grace of God, a gift of healing through you to that person from God, a gift at that one time, and God can move through anyone. I think it's a huge disservice to the church to think that there are certain people um, and, 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 and that only have that. Uh, I think that anyone who wants the power of the spirit to flow through them, they can have that for the asking. You fathers being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more will the, the father give the Holy Ghost to those who ask? It's just there for the asking. That's why you have the, the authority to ask um, the, the Lord for healing for a person if they're sick or an infirmity of some kind. Um, but when it comes to this idea of New Testament prophecy, it takes on a little different nature. No longer is it foretelling the fruit future or you know, uh, none of you as can come and I am a prophet Lord and thus saith the Lord and you'll see YouTube videos of people claiming to be prophets uh, and stuff like that. Some people even have made the mistake because I do prophecy updates. They don't listen to what I'm actually saying, but they say, oh, Brett thinks he's a prophet because he's doing prophecy updates. No, I'm talking about prophecy that's in the Bible. I am not a prophet, nor have I ever claimed to be one. I think that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. Um, so people just need to stop being stupid. But anyway, um, but, but all that to say, uh, what, what is a New Testament prophet? Well, jot this down. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse three defines it for us. It says in the New Testament age, but he that prophesieth, this is somebody who gets just by the Holy Spirit coming through them, moving in their life. He that prophesieth speaks unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. Um, notice the word prediction's not there. But when a word of prophecy is given by a person in the church, and any one of you can give one of those under the power of the Spirit, I bet some of you have done it without even knowing it. Maybe you prayed, Lord, would you please help me speak to this person? And then you go and speak to the person who needs like a word from the Lord. You just sense that I just don't have, I'm way over my skis on this conversation. And you say, Lord, help me. And then you just kind of get an exacting word and, and the Lord speaks through you powerfully and you, and you realize it kind of connects and you realize there was something kind of happened there. Praise the Lord, you just were able to uh, use that beautiful power of God through you in a word of prophecy. Doesn't mean you're a prophet or a prophetess. It just means you gave a word of edification, which means to build up, uh, exhortation, which means kind of a correction, or just a word of comfort, which people need that. So if, if the Old Testament way of prophets are done, the way God spoke to the people and the people to God, then who speaks to the church today? Well, this is an important part of this discussion. Jot down Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two. Um, here's what the Lord says. I, I got the ESV version on this one because I really liked it, uh, how clear it is. It's uh, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his, what? Son, whom he appointed 
the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Isn't that something that Jesus was part of the creation? Uh, he, he, that's an important part. And we'll talk even about that probably as we get going here. But how does God speak to the church through his son, Jesus Christ? That's, that's why we don't need prophets anymore. Um, and that's why John said in John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Um, and then in John 1:14, the same chapter, and the word uh, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And by the way, every time the word is there in your Bible, it's, it's capitalized because we're talking about not a what, but a who, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. Jesus is the, um, the living word of God that is among us. So um, what changed during the life of John the Baptist to, um, to end this Old Testament style of prophet? Uh, the answer, Jesus was born. Once Jesus was born, and once John the Baptist fulfilled his ministry to prepare the way for Jesus, then uh, the Lord started a whole new plan when it came to this idea of um, you know, the prophets. So what do we have? Today, Jesus was the one who changed everything, and then after that, he had the apostles who were sent out by Jesus to further the word of God. But after the apostles, uh, uh, and we could even argue that in some ways that we're called to be apostles as well, sent ones. But ultimately now we have the written word. So, so the Bible kind of makes that case that they had the prophets of the Old Testament, then there was Jesus, then there, then there was the apostles and the letters of the apostles, the epistles. Uh, and then after that, we have the Bible and that is uh, the word of God. And we have that, it's living and powerful, sharper than any children. So that's why we're here on a Wednesday night studying it because it is the living word of God. Uh, the New Testament word of prophecy um, doesn't really make you a prophet. I hope you know that. Same with healer, uh, study 1 Corinthians 12. That's kind of a key. Um, but by the way, um, when people claim to have the, you know, the power of healing or a prophet, I, I do sense there's often a little bit of a prideful thing where they wanna be considered super spiritual and they wanna be sort of a, a lofty person, have the, everybody go, whoa, that's a prophet. Or ooh, that's a healer. They've got a gift of healing. And um, one of the things the Bible teaches is that shouldn't be sort of our MO. We shouldn't be wanting to seek glory or credit for anything that we do. Um, saying, you know, I am a prophet of the Lord. That's just biblically inaccurate. And you can say, no, you're not. Um, but, but all that to say, so far we've learned that John the Baptist was the greatest man born among women. Uh, we also see uh, that Jesus um, uh, ended his prophetic ministry when Jesus was born. So we pick it up here in Matthew chapter three with sort of those things as a little bit of a foundation as we introduce ourselves to J the B. Here we go. Verse one, chapter three. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and leathern girdle around his loins and his meat was locusts and wild honey. So here we go, we kind of meet John the Baptist and there's so, much thing, so many things here to notice about John the Baptist. 
Um, and and uh, I always crack up when they depict John the Baptist in the Jesus movies and stuff, because uh, this is a fun guy. If you're, if you're the costume designer and the hairdo person and all that, John the Baptist is probably your funnest project. Uh, because this guy looked like a wild man. Uh, that's the idea. But before we get into that, first of all, notice John the Baptist. His ministry uh, kind of is summed up in a few things, even in what we just read. Number one, his message. His message, we see that right here. He gave the message saying, verse two, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, first of all, the word repent. It means, as we often say here at 8th Greek, reminding people repentance means to, to turn around, to change your mind, to change the direction of your life. Repentance, you know, it's almost like in a military term where you would be marching in one direction and then you say, you know, uh, about face, forward, march. And that's, that's what repentance looks like right there. Um, and that's what we should do. When you become a Christian, repentance has to be part of that deal. That you say, okay, I, I acknowledge that I was heading in a direction of sinfulness and now I'm gonna turn. It doesn't mean you're perfect. If repentance meant you had to be perfect from this day forward, which one of us would be saved? Yeah, none of us. Um, but repentance means it's a mind, it's an attitude change. And it's a thing where we're seeking the Lord and, and pursuing the right direction. And we might fail and make mistakes from time to time. We're a work in prog uh, progress for sure. But real repentance means it's an about face. And that's what John the Baptist was all about, preaching repentance. Um, and then he also preached about the kingdom of heaven. Now you might say, what does the kingdom of heaven have to do with anything? You know, the kingdom, if, if, you, if you know the rest of your Bible, some of you guys would be thinking, you know, the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, when Christ rules and reigns on the throne, isn't that the kingdom? Yes. But one thing you should know um, about the kingdom is for a kingdom to be a kingdom, what, what's one of your more essential items you need? A king, right? Yeah. And see, John the Baptist is talking about the kingdom because the king is near. The king is coming, the king Jesus. Um, this is a great thing. Anybody remember uh, the old story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's you know, Chronicles of Narnia? Most of you probably have heard of that at least, but one of the things that you kind of love about that is there's so many little nuances that he slipped into that story that uh, actually has real meaning. But one of the things is, you know, you, uh, you start to see the snow melting. Because remember the wicked white witch always made it snow, but never Christmas. Uh, and, uh, but, but, but there was word, you know, the beaver family, hey, there's word that, that the king, you know, Aslan is coming. Uh, and and everyone's like, Aslan, who's Aslan? And, uh, and, and then there's kind of a stir, you know. And, and, and there's rumor, but then eventually the king comes and then all the snow melts and everything. Like, it's a great, great story. That, that's kind of what's going on here with John the Baptist. He, he's basically preaching the kingdom because the king of kings is coming, Jesus. So in order to have a kingdom, you need a king. He's pointing out. That's John the Baptist's whole job is to prepare the way for the king. And you say, well, the kingdom is near. It's not. It's still, you know, thousands of years from this time where Jesus is gonna come. Uh, we know that, but remember, the kingdom is where the king is. And so John the Baptist was correct in saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The time is close. The time is now when the king of kings will show up. So that would all be true. It would just be fulfilled a little different with some different timing. Uh, that's, that's the thing about that. So his message is about the kingdom of Jesus and about repentance. Those are his two main uh, themes that he's talking about. Number two, John the Baptist also is a fulfillment of prophecy. We read that right here in uh, where it says um, in verse three, for this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. 
Um, and now this, this gives me an opportunity to show you something that's kind of important. It says, um, you know, that Isaiah would say, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Um, now, by the way, John the Baptist is not just fulfilling Isaiah, he's also fulfilling, do you guys remember when we were in Malachi just a few weeks ago? We saw where Malachi the prophet also predicted John the Baptist. He said, behold, I will send my messenger. He shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith Lord of hosts. So not only is John the Baptist a fulfillment of Malachi three, um, the messenger is John before the messenger Jesus, if you would. But Isaiah chapter 40 then, uh, says and, and it says the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway of our God. Now, now pause on this for a second because this gives me a chance to say something that freaks people out and it shouldn't. If you go to Isaiah uh, chapter 40, verse three, which we've done and you compare, uh, you know, what says here, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, um, it says the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And here it says, um, prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his path straight. But this one says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Well, this is, this is Matthew misquoting the Bible. And people get really up in a tizzy because it's not word for word quoting of Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. Have you ever wondered about that? Should we be nervous about that? I'll tell you why we shouldn't. Um, uh, and even though there's people that will kind of try to raise this is that, you know, there's all these misquotations in the Bible from the Old Testament to the New. When the New Testament authors write Old Testament scriptures and some people, uh, there, there's actually two mistakes we make on this. Number one, um, people think, well, the Bible's unreliable because the misquoting of Old Testament scripture. The second mistake we make is, well, if Jesus and the New Testament authors kind of paraphrase the Old Testament and made light of it, then we can paraphrase the Bible and sort of make light of it too. Um, and I've heard that and that's ridiculous as well. Um, what, what is the problem when there's a, a seemingly misquote? Here's the thing you have to understand. It has to do with the ancient languages. Um, if you've ever been uh, to another country, have you ever spoken through a translator? Um, I've had an opportunity to do this like a lot. Uh, I've, I've had translators in Honduras and Africa and Mexico and uh, you know all over the world. I've been able to kind of use translators uh, for various reasons in Israel with Hebrew. And, um, but one of the things that translation is not an exact science. Um, it's, it's really kind of difficult. Uh, unless you've actually uh, looked at it up close. Uh, you remember we were doing, uh, we have some of our, uh, you know, our sermons are being translated into Russian uh, on, on YouTube. Uh, if you can go there, if, you're, if you have a Russian family, you can point them to our teachings because there's Russian translation. Um, but uh, when we had the Russian uh, live, uh, you know, uh, interpretation going for a while, we had someone upstairs and, and we had this really good translator. And, uh, but, you know, they were listening in as I was teaching live and they'd be talking and stuff. But um, the Russians who kind of knew both English and Russian or Ukrainian even, they would come and say, um, Pastor Brett, you know, it's, it's just not the same. I'm like, yeah, but like we've got really t oh, great translators, but here's the way it goes down because the cultures are so different that you just don't say th things the same way. And so like typically I'd crack a joke and then the Russian translation would go, this is American humor. People think this is funny in the United <laughs> States of America. <laughs> Brett is cracking a joke now. And the Americans, they kind of think it's funny. 
<laughs> and I, I thought that was hilarious, you know, but, but there's, and, and I said, well, why does she tell the joke? Or why doesn't he, you know, well, cause it just doesn't really translate, right? Um, so translation is, is tricky, right? But, but here's what you got when you got the, the Bible, you've got first, you got the Hebrew being translated into Greek. Um, and like, for example, what we're reading here from Matthew, believe it or not, it is a word for word translation from the Greek Septuagint. Now, what's the Greek Septuagint? The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and it was done around 270-ish uh, BC, uh, which is an important date to remember for other reasons. But, but um, the Septuagint is actually an amazing Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, okay? Um, so, so now you've got um, going from Hebrew to Greek, and then, and then from Greek to English. And, and so we've got three layers of translation that has happened. Now, people say, yeah, but it's not exactly the same. It, it's pretty close uh, as far as a translation goes. And isn't it funny that Jesus quoted from the Septuagint? So you kind of have to understand, well, Jesus signed his name to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, which is different in some ways than the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament. Are you guys with me on that? We don't have to freak out about that, especially because of this one single truth. And this is what you need to know. What's amazing to me is there's no major discrepancy. Oh, there's a little word here or there or a spelling of a place or a name that's different. <clears throat> that's just gonna happen with translation and, and thousands of years. But <clears throat> nothing of significance, nothing doctrinally that shifts what we believe or challenges or even contradicts itself, nothing like that has happened with the Hebrew Old Testament to the Greek Septuagint. And even I would say to our newer uh, translations of the Bible. Um, how do we know the scriptures are accurate? We have a few things that actually tell us that. By the way, before the 1940s, um, the, all the pipe puffing, cardigan, sweater wearing professors, the skeptics, the cynics, they would say, well, the Bible you Christians have today is nothing like what the real Hebrew Bible originally would have said. Um, and the reason they could boast that is we really didn't have any really old, old, old manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, we had really, uh, you know, a translation to, or, you know, a, 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 a translation to translation kind of on and on over the years. And so they were saying, your Bible as you hold it back in the 1930s and 40s is very unreliable. Until what, anybody? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Remember the Dead Sea Scroll find in the 1940s? Little kid was out trying to find his lost, you know, goat, and he goat runs into a cave in Qumran. I've been there, uh, taking Athe Creekers to this place in the desert where you go and you see these caves. They're all over the cliffs, and this little kid climbs into this hole and goes back and he throws a rock and he hears this hollow chink. He's like, "What was that?" So he keeps going back in there and he finds all these jars that have been sealed up with these scrolls hidden within the jars. Um, and they come from a group of people called the Essenes who preserved scripture from the ancient Old Testament Hebrew. Uh, you can go to the Shrine of the Scrolls there in Jerusalem and you can actually see parts of Isaiah and Daniel. They don't put them all out on display because they're kind of fragile. Um, but you can see chunks of them and it's incredible. One of the greatest things about that was all those pipe puffing, cardigan, sweater wearing people had to eat their words 
uh, because as it turns out, the ancient manuscripts ma ma uh, perfectly match up with the modern uh, translations of the book of Isaiah. Uh, and nothing heavy duty, nothing doctrinally that changes anything uh, sh would shake the, the solid uh, scriptures that we hold in our hands. That, that's, that, the Dead Sea Scrolls was one of the greatest finds maybe uh, in archeology span that I think ever because of the, just verifying the word of God. But with that, uh, you know, people can argue co copyist issues, translational dif issues, uh, differences and stuff, but nothing that controverts the gospel of Jesus or any of the really uh, meaningful theology of the Bible. Nothing challenges that. So don't listen to these people say, oh, the Bible's full of this and that and mistakes here and there. And they'll, difference, they'll point out differences and stuff. Um, there might be reasons for differences, but nothing changes. And that's why the Bible still remains. That's why um, people still are uh, believing in God's word because nothing has been shaken, even though they'll try to claim that. Um, now, here's what you have to be careful of, modern translations. Because some of them are really good, some of them are really bad. Be careful about that. Uh, where we go bad is where it's not a translation, but it's actually um, uh, uh, sort of an interpretation uh, where people have an agenda, modern so-called <clears throat> translations. I love, of course, the, people ask me, Brett, why do you use the King James Bible? Um, I love it because um, it's withstood the test of time and it's, it's, it's very reliable. Um, and I also like it for its poetic value. And since I've been reading it for, since I was a kid, the these and thous and verilies don't really freak me out too bad. Um, and it also slows me down. Reading King Jimmy English uh, makes me slow down and kind of take care to read stuff a little more carefully. I kind of like that. Sometimes when I read through my modern versions, which I have, I kind of blow through it because it's just kind of easier. And, um, but I like the way the King James sort of makes me methodically, carefully sort of read. That's just my personal opinion. But there's a lot of great translations. The New King James or the, um, the you know, uh, American Standard. Some of the scholars actually lean on the New American Standard Bible and say that might be linguistically one of the best, some people argue, um, the scholars. The problem is it is a little dry. It sounds like a scholarly work, less than the King James. The King James has kind of a poetic value uh, where the Bible, King James says, verily, verily, I say unto thee. Uh, the New American Standard says, truly, truly, I say to you. It's just a little colder, you know what I mean? But some of you are okay with that, that's great. And it is. Um, by the way, wanna know one of my newest favorite translations is the ESV. Um, that's why we've stocked it up in our bookstore back here, a lot of ESV Bibles, because it's really a great translation. If you're looking for a very readable, like the King James, it's not like me, you know, with I, since I grew up with it, and you're like, Brett, the King James, it's like reading a whole other language. Um, that's okay. The ESV is not a bad translation at all. Um, I used to say for that, the NIV, but, um, you know, it's interesting because um, the NIV has sort of gone through in September of 2009, it was announced the TNIV, where they would make it more of a general neutral attempt. They, they swapped the, the NIV to the TNIV. So if you have a pre-2009 NIV, that's probably better and good. Um, uh, after 2009, they did that for a while. It got some controversy. Um, and so they started kind of blending the TNIV with the NIV. And in March of 2011, for you NIV people, um, uh, you know, they, they kind of released sort of the new, they kind of got rid of the TNIV and just sort of made it the new NIV, which still has some of the gender alter things in there. Um, and it's received some of the same criticism regarding its gender neutral language of the TNIV. So, um, so all that to say, now, now you can't really even find very many of those older NIVs. So what do you do? Brad, what do I do? Uh, 
don't worry. Uh, the ESV is really good. Or if you have a really old NIV, pre-2009, you're, you're doing good. NIV was great before they tried to go a little more gender neutral. Does that make sense? Just giving you guys some freebies here for you, uh, things to think about. But I really do like the ESV. They've, they've done a great job. And that now has been around enough years where scholars are starting to say, yeah, the ESV pretty much nailed it and did a really good job. You'll also come into a group of people that are King James only. And, uh, and this is a funny thing, because I have to be careful here, because I might be tempted to call them wacko. <laughs> but we have a lot of King James only people here. <laughs> Some of you are like, yeah, but, but here's the, 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 there's King James only people that go to AC Creek because I'm one of the only guys that use the King James. They're like, well, Brad, at least he doesn't know it, but he's using the only true authority. Hey, if the King James Bible was good enough for Paul the apostle, it was good enough for me. <laughs> and there's this whole construct behind the King James only. And I've studied it. I've, I know all about the, you know, the seven you know, inspired uh, translations and the, la- and the layers and all that stuff. I know that stuff, but um, it's just not really accurate if you're just gonna do some real serious work on that. Um, all that to say, uh, I, I'm really thankful for all the legitimate translations we have. We have many really good options. Sprinkled in there, however, is some really bad options. Uh, like for example, the New World Translation. That is not a translation at all. Um, you know, um, the New World Translation is the Bible of the, of the Jehovah's Witness. And it looks very much like your Bible. Uh, if you have a New World Translation, you probably need to get rid of it because uh, they tweak things to uh, fit their, their own kind of wacko doctrines. Uh, and it's not in the original texts of the Greek. Probably the most well-known um, of all the perversions of the New World Translation is John 1.1. The one that we just read, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And, um, and the New World Translation just changed one letter, one letter. And they tweaked and perverted the whole thing. Instead of saying in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. It says in the beginning was the word was with God and the word was a God. Just the letter A change the meeting and uh, it's not correct. Uh, it's, it's not a matter of correct translation, but reading one's perceived theology into the text rather than allowing the text to speak for itself. So um, be careful about all that stuff. Um, uh, and you know, of course the Book of Mormon was an addition. You're not supposed to add to the Bible. It's very clear. We've talked about that uh, before, even last week. Um, so the prophecies, back, now back to John, uh, the prophecies of, of John all came to pass. So we see, we see back to John the Baptist here, we see his message, fulfillment of prophecy, um, and, and that he is a living fulfillment of prophecy. J the B is preaching uh, about out in the wilderness, preaching about Jesus. Um, now, by the way, where was John actually baptizing people? Again, this is the nerdy part of me, but I actually like this stuff. Um, the, the, the Jordan River, Brett, you, you were talking about that. Yeah, but l- let's talk about the Jordan. This is one picture of the Jordan River. Um, but, um, you know, Athey Creekers, we always go there to this one part and we do some worship and they make you wear these white robes. It's a real bummer. Um, baptismalrobe.com. They won't let you on the Jordan River unless you're wearing these goofy uh, little uh, baptismal robes. Um, see the fish in that picture? This is great. I'm glad we got, a, this is an Athey Creek picture of this little fish. I always have to warn people when I baptize them in the Jordan River um, because there's these little fish. They're about, um, about 14 inches long and they're really nice little fish, but they have these little teeth and <laughs> little, just little teeth. And they come up and as you're standing in the waters of baptism, just being blessed, all of a sudden you feel these little nibbles on your legs <laughs> and your toes. And uh, these, these fish just kind of swim up and start 
And uh, it's always hilarious. I'll be talking to someone else, like, ah! like, like people, <laughs> they just totally freak out. Uh, and it's, it, it, um, it's pretty funny. Um, but anyway, uh, I digress. The reason I, I show you this is, um, this, is the, this, is the, this is the Jordan River right next to the, where this, it comes out of the Sea of Galilee. And it's beautiful, kind of tropical, uh, but it does look a little bit like the Tualatin River, I'm just gonna say. Um, now, I wanna show you on a map though, um, that this is where John the Baptist's ministry was. Um, it was not by the Sea of Galilee up in the north. That's where we do our baptisms. You say, well, Brett, why don't we do the baptisms where John the Baptist baptized Jesus? The answer, because it was in the country of Jordan. <laughs> uh, Jesus was baptized on the east side of the Jordan River. Um, and uh, this is in the desert of the Jordan, uh, the Jordan River. Uh, the desert region. Um, um, it's interesting that people uh, uh, don't realize, uh, and you say, well, why don't people get baptized there? They do, there's a little baptismal site there, but you have to understand, this is where the Jordan, this is the way it looks down there. Uh, this is the Jordan River down in the Southern by the Dead Sea. Uh, as you get closer to the Dead Sea, things look deader and deader uh, as it turns out. Um, yeah, but all that to say, um, I just wanted to let you kind of get a see, a vision of what kind of what it looks like down in that region. And this is where it sort of floats into the Dead Sea. This would have been around where Jesus was, was baptized and what have you. But all that to say, um, uh, so John the Baptist, um, one of the things we have to remember is um, his unique appearance. And that's one of the things that describes. Why does it describe his appearance? There's a reason the Bible tells us what John the Baptist looked like. Camel hair, leather girdle, loincloth, kind of belt sort of thing. He was eating, you know, uh, locust and honey. You know, I, I can just picture, can you imagine seeing this guy? Camel's skin is not something that's super attractive. I'm just, I'm just gonna say it's not attractive. Um, uh, and he's got a loincloth of leather and camel skin, kind of holding it all together with a little bug leg sticking out of his twitching in his teeth uh, and, and honey in his beard. Like this guy, he's a little bit of a wild guy. And, um, and the reason his appearance actually makes a difference there in verse four is because of who they would think he's, who he is. There's a reason people say, hey, this guy sort of reminds us of an Old Testament prophet. Is he? And this was the question that swirled around John the Baptist his whole life was, is he, is he Elijah come back? Remember Elijah was taken up in a fiery chariot, uh, never saw death. Um, and, and they knew the Bible in the Hebrew Bible prophesied that Elijah would eventually come back. And so when they say John the Baptist, you, you might say, um, why, why would they think that this is Elijah? Well, 2 Kings chapter one, you can jot this down in your notes, verse eight, it says, and they answered him and he was a hairy man. This is Elijah. Uh, and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And they said, you know, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Um, so Elijah the prophet was this hairy, rough looking, leather skin wearing kind of dude. Um, and, um, and this has very much to do with God's plan um, because of God's plan for John the Baptist, also for Elijah. Um, and this was very different from the norm of that day. People that were preaching the scriptures were not the hairy men with loinskin of you know, leather and bugs hanging out their teeth. Of that day, it was the fancy dud wearing Pharisees. They were the religious leaders and the Sadducees and the scribes that, was, that would be the leaders. They were more polished. And they hadn't seen a prophet like in the Old Testament, wild hair and beard and crazy bugs and all that stuff. They hadn't seen that for 400 years. 
And so this really sets the stage for people thinking, well, who is this? Is this Elijah come back from the dead? That's why his appearance matters here. Well, let's read on in verse five. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. Isn't that funny? They came out to him in the middle of nowhere. Verse six, and were baptized of him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. This is that repentance we were talking about. The people come out and hear John the Baptist teaching repentance and they would say, yes, we're sinners and these are our sins. Will you please baptize us? And so they did. Um, and, um, and so uh, that's exactly what John the Baptist is all about, uh, the, the baptism. Now, um, uh, what's interesting here, by the way, is um, the baptism, which baptism was this? And this is something you have to kind of think about. Was this baptism that John was doing, question, was it the exact same thing we did last Sunday in the river, in the Willamette River? It's not, and you need to know that if you wanna know your Bible. Uh, by the way, it was great. Every, every week we're doing more and more baptisms. It's kind of amazing uh, what the Lord's doing at Athey Creek with people getting saved and people getting baptized. You know, um, every other week we'll have 50 or more people getting baptized. Last Sunday was an awesome day. We baptized a bunch of people in the river. It was just, it's always so moving to see the Lord working in the hearts of people. Um, I think one of my favorite things to do, honestly, is baptize uh, people. Uh, because that's where the Lord meets people so radically. Um, but we'll talk about that uh, as we keep going. Verse eight, uh, pardon me, verse seven. says, but when you saw many of the Pharisees, when, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you uh, to flee from the wrath to come? He says, bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. What's, what's going on here? Here, John the Baptist sees these Pharisees and Sadducees, and he calls them out uh, very boldly. And uh, I always like to say this because from time to time, you know, when I'm teaching the Bible and talking about various things that we need to watch out for, I feel compelled as a pastor, Bible teacher, to warn people of, of false teaching. And I feel like you kind of have to call it out clearly or else people are very confused. So from time to time, I'll mention, I just mentioned Benny Hinn uh, a little while ago. And some of you are probably, some of you online are going, oh, but I give to Benny Hinn Ministries and I, you shouldn't. Uh, Benny Hinn is totally whacked. And he has been for a really long time. Uh, people don't realize, a lot of people don't do their research, I've noticed. They just think, oh, the holy anointing is upon him. And he comes off very amazing, you know. Um, but it's all just a big charade and he's in for the money. I know inside stuff about him and stuff that's just really horrifying um, and it's not good. Um, and, uh, you know, he did have accountability at one point, Benny Hinn did. He used to uh, submit to technically, remember Jack Hayford, who is kind of the leader of the Foursquare uh, movement? Um, and then Benny started teaching that Adam and Eve went to the moon and that there were three trinities within a trinity uh, and all this weird stuff. And Jack Hayford said, Benny, you gotta stop teaching that wacko stuff. That's not right, it's not biblical. And so he repented for two months and then he started teaching Adam and he went to the moon and uh, the three trinities within a trinity. And basically, if you send your thousand dollar love gift, I'll pray for you and you'll be healed and you'll throw your wheelchairs off the stage, all that stuff. But Brett, I, I saw it, I, I saw it. When Benny was on the stage in Portland at the you know, Rose Garden back then, he waved his coat and the whole crowd in the front, they all went down and were violent on the floor. And it was like, how's that happen? How does everybody in the front go down? You wanna know how they do it? This is how they do it. I know because we had a bunch of covert ops there at that watching how they did it. Um, 
they had an all day thing there. It was a big deal. And the first part of the day, they just walk around and the deacons walk around the, 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 the Coliseum and they sort of wave their hand at you. And if you twitch and fall down uh, just naturally, then they say, here's a ticket. You get to sit in the front row. Uh, they do that all day long. Uh, and you walk around, poof, and the person's, uh, what are you doing? You're a weirdo. They don't give you the special ticket. But if you get waved at and you fall down and gyrate on the floor, and if you're really good at gyrating, you get the ticket for the front row for tonight's big show when Benny is there. So that when Benny waves his coat, those are the kind of people that are just gonna go down and flop, and that's the way it works. Like, that's just, you know, a charlatan. He's just, uh, and it's the oldest tricks in the book, and he's doing that kind of stuff, and he has for a long time. Fortunately, he's getting old enough where hopefully he's gone here pretty soon. Um, uh, but, uh, but he's done a lot of, dip. well, bro, you shouldn't do, well, did you hear, did you hear what John the Baptist, the greatest man ever born among women, said? I didn't call Benny a viper. Um, I probably should. Um, <laughs> He says, oh, generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? These guys are going for doom here. That's what John the Baptist said. So those people say, Brett, you should only be what you're for. You should only talk about nice things and stuff. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what John the Baptist did. We're told as pastors to watch and warn the flock. There's wolves among the sheep. sheep. And we've got to call it out. I'm sorry if that offends you, but uh, we're going to keep doing what the Bible says as it comes to warning. Uh, but all that to say, um, there it goes on in verse eight, bring forth therefore the fruits meet for repentance and think not to say within the, yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And now also the ax is laid to, unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth uh, not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Ooh boy, Jay the B. Like he's given some seriously strong words here, right? Um, he's talking about them being the tree and God's gonna take an ax to the roots of this tree, which means you're gonna be dead if you're getting your roots chopped off, you have no more life in you. Um, and there's part of these trees that were uh, uh, the sons of Abraham. Um, there's so much here. Now, before we get into this, um, you know, uh, I, I was talking to two brothers just this last week, we had a good conversation and uh, we were talking about what if the Jews die right now, do they automatically go to heaven? because they're God's chosen people. And the answer is, and, and we, we had a good conversation about this, but this, this is one of those passages that kind of continually, just because you're a Jew uh, today, doesn't mean you're saved. Uh, that's something you need to understand. Remember in the Old Testament, the Jews, how were you saved? You believed God and it was counted to you for righteousness. That's all you really needed in the Old Testament is to believe God. Did you have to keep the law perfectly and be, to be saved? No, because nobody ever did that. Abraham believed God and it was counted him for righteousness. Was he perfect? No. So the Jews in the Old Testament were saved by believing God. And then the New Testament tells us we're saved the same way, by believing God. But there's an additional part, uh, component that fulfills the Old Testament Bible. And that is that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, would come and die for the sins of the world. Once Jesus died, was buried and rose from the grave, salvation is the same for everyone. Jew and Gentile, they need Jesus. It's interesting here because we see sort of the introduction of that right here. No other name by, under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Jesus, not Abraham even. That's what Jesus is saying. You, you, know, you guys think because you're Abraham's children, you're just locked in. But he's saying, God's gonna take a, an ax to your root 
because of your rebellion. That, that's what he's saying here. The Pharisees, um, by the way, the Jews needed to repent just like everyone else. That's what verse eight says. When he's talking to the vipers, he says, bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. You guys need to repent just like everybody else is what he's saying. Verse nine, you're not saved just because you're Jewish or the descendants of Abraham. Um, and the Pharisees, they were, just so you know, we're gonna meet these guys throughout the whole gospel narrative. So get used to the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes. Uh, the Pharisees were legalists. They were into the law and they would keep the law and they were sort of separatists. They kept themselves separate from everyone else because they were so seemingly pure and holy, but they kind of weren't. The Sadducees were a little different and the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't get along. The Sadducees didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, after the dead. Uh, in other words, once you die, you just cease to exist. That's why they were sad, you see. Um, um, <laughs> sorry, I just, that's not true. That's not. So Sadducees, they, but they don't believe in the resurrection. They, 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 they were liberalists, uh, rationalists. Uh, they were sort of reformed, modernist, humanist, and they denied the inspiration of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament. So these guys, you can almost recognize the Sadducees today, can't you? There's a group of people out there that are just like the Sadducees. They deny the miracles of God. They don't believe there's life after death. And they're, you know, but they still have sort of this weird uh, sense of religion, but they don't really believe in the power of God. But um, all that to say, watch out for that. The scribes, they were uh, known just to be scholarly. They were sort of the intellectual bunch. Um, but, but notice what, what John the Baptist says. He says in, um, in verse uh, nine, he says, you, you, know, you guys think you're saved because we have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you that God is able to of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Who do you think he's talking about there? I mean, if John the Baptist said, God can make these rocks laying here on the ground, he can save these rocks if he wants to. He's talking about, guess what? Us, we're the Gentiles. The Jews in those days thought Gentiles were made for one reason, to fuel the fires of hell. That's why they believe Gentiles existed. These religious leaders would have never imagined anyone who was a non-Jew ever being saved or God caring about them whatsoever. Um, so the stones raised up, I believe that's a foreshadowing of how, what God is about to do. And how would he do it? How would he raise up even the stones? Through Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, who would die for the sins of the whole world. More than just the sons of Abraham, uh, it was the whole world that Jesus came to, to um, to, to be saved. So, so the Old Testament, you know, Greek, uh, uh, the, the Jew, uh, Gen Genesis 15, six, Abraham believed in the Lord and accounted him for righteousness. Old Testament believers. By the way, part of this group of believers was Lot. Lot never did anything good in the Old Testament. It's hard to find one good thing that he did. I, I've never yet found one. And yet in the New Testament, um, He's called righteous Lot. Uh, verse chapter, Hebrews 10, 10, by which we are sanctified through the offering uh, pardon me, oh, I missed one somewhere along the way. Uh, oh yeah, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. Jot that down in your notes where, where Paul is, uh, call, uh, Peter's calling Lot, righteous Lot. How was he made righteous? Um, it's because of Hebrews 10.10 10 tells us, by which we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's Jew, Gentile, uh, anyone with a pulse, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world so that anyone who wanted to be saved would, could accept and believe. Um, so that's, that's a really key part of what we're reading here. Um, now, all that to say, verse 11 goes on. And I indeed, he says there in, in uh, Matthew chapter three, verse 11, uh, I indeed baptize you 
with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his uh, floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wow, this is John the Baptist saying what Jesus is coming to do. Um, first, the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, the purifying work of the fire. Um, uh, let's talk about first the, the fires in the Bible. <clears throat> we talk about the fires of hell, Gehenna, the lake of fire. That speaks of, of ultimate judgment uh, for sin. But we also have the Bema seat judgment, which is also fire. Did you know that? Um, quick question, if you're a Christian, are you gonna be at the great white throne judgment or the Bema seat judgment? The Bema seat. The, the unbelievers get judged and are thrown into fire at the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20. But the Bema seat judgment, um, you know, and this is talked about in Corinthians and other places in the Bible where you're gonna be judged according to your works and they'll be tried by fire and there's a purifying effect. Uh, the, the, the stuff you did that was corrupt or bad, it will be purified by going through that fire, burned up. Like what they do with gold or silver when they refine it uh, in fire. Uh, how will your good works hold up to that fire? Um, I, I do wonder about that. Like, what's that gonna be like? It makes me a little nervous. Because uh, I know that in my, in my flesh, there's no good thing. I, I kind of admit like Paul, uh, you just see your own frailty. And so, oh, Pastor Brett, you're, you're gonna have rewards in heaven. Because uh, all those sermons, well, let's try one of those sermons. This is what I picture in my mind's eye. The Lord take, oh, you wanna see your sermons? Okay, let's, let's try that before. Here we go. Putting the sermon in, oh, it's half burned up already. Um, the Lord says, that's the jokes you said that were not funny. <laughs> let's try some more of that sermon, okay. Oh, it's gone even more. What? That's the stuff you stole from other pastors. Oh. <laughs> don't you wonder, like, don't you wonder if, like, uh, if there'll be much left, you know, by the time you're, you're, oh, I taught Sunday school. Well, let's try that out. It's because the girls were pretty and you were single and you thought it'd be cool to meet some of the other Sunday school teachers. Like, don't you wonder, but I gave of my tithe and offer. It's a great tax break. Uh, you know, it's like, I just, thing after thing, you kind of you wonder like, Lord, you know, but I do believe the Lord is gracious, but that, that's where this trial by fire, and I think that's kind of the refiner's fire that a little bit like John the Baptist is talking about here. How will our works hold up to fire? Um, uh, the, this baptism from John, by the way, um, is with water, but then he talks about how Jesus would come and baptize with the Holy Ghost. Um, what is all that about? Um, this, this is where the Holy Spirit is, there's been much confusion on this. And again, I would refer to the teaching I did on the Holy Spirit series. But um, the Holy Spirit uh, is, is, has three relationships. And I'll go over that really fast. Genesis 6, 3 says this. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. And the word with is the operative word there. Um, for, uh, for that he also is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. So um, interesting, the Lord says in his word, the Lord will not always strive with man. Implication, the Lord strives with man. And that's when the Holy Spirit is with you. Before you were even saved, he strives to, to say, you need to be saved, you need to repent. The Holy Spirit is with you, number one. The second preposition is in you. Uh, 
John 14, 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, Jesus said, neither knows him, but um, you know him for he dwells in you and shall be uh, with you. He, he is with, dwells with you and he shall be in you. And that's the second key. Once you become a Christian, the spirit of truth comes and dwells in you. I think that happens the day you accept Christ is when the Holy Spirit is in you. But there's a third preposition, and this is where our cessationist friends say, well, that's it right there. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit's in you, that's it. But the whole coming upon of the Holy Spirit, the third preposition is the one that they say, that was for just the old, the old days when, when they were speaking in tongues there with Peter and stuff, and that's all ceased. Um, I don't agree with that for so many reasons. Um, the Bible never says it ceased. Um, and the Bible actually tells you and me many, many years after the, the day of Pentecost when they were speaking in tongues and tongues of fire were over their heads. Many, many years after that, Paul gave rules around the speaking in tongues and what a word of prophecy is and the manifestation. Paul wrote about that decades later about how the church should roll when it came to the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon the church. And we see Jesus telling the guys, he said, and when Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said, he said to them, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Um, by the way, that, I forgot to click that one. That one, that one is the, the, the Holy Spirit is in you once you accept Christ, Jesus. But then the next one is um, Acts chapter two, verses three and four, where Jesus told them to wait uh, for the coming upon. It says, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues as fire, and it sat upon each of them. Um, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And by the way, in chapter one, I forgot to put that one up there. In Acts chapter one, Jesus said, wait there for me and the spirit will come upon you. The dunamis, the, the word dunamis is power, like dynamite is gonna come upon you. So Jesus, is, that's, that's the idea of the, have you ever heard somebody use the term baptism of the Holy Spirit? And people say, well, that's not in the Bible. Um, well, it kind of is because John says the, the Lord is gonna baptize you, Jesus will, baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. I think that's speaking of power and refinement. That's what the Lord is gonna do. Um, and, and this is just foreshadows of coming attractions. We'll get into all of this uh, deeper as we get going. Um, okay, uh, verse 13. It says, then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan um, unto John. Uh, to, be, uh, to be baptized of him. But John forbade him saying, I have need to be baptized of thee and comest thou to me? <laughs> um, this is, um, this is uh, you know, can you imagine? I remember uh, um, a buddy of mine, we were, we were uh, doing music and playing in bands when we were in high school. And I remember this friend of mine, he was a bassist. He was really good. He was, he was actually my brother-in-law, Corey. And, um, and he was playing bass in this show in Grants Pass out of the park. It was pretty cool. It was, it was a neat uh, Christian concert. And I remember all of a sudden I noticed he was like, he, he was never nervous, never, but this day suddenly he's nervous and he's making mistakes and it was so uncharacteristic of him. I'm like, what's going on? And then I realized one of the greatest baser, bass players in the world sat right in front of him, right in front, just sitting there. And he was sitting, it'd be like, it'd be like if you're singing and Pavarotti sits right in the front row and, it's kind of looking at you and you're like, can you imagine? I forget the name, was it Herb Melton? Anybody remember Herb Melton? Anyway, that, that was the guy. But, um, but all that to say, John the Baptist is out doing his ministry and all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. Can you imagine it and says, I want you to baptize me. And you just get that sense that John the Baptist is like, oh, I shouldn't be baptizing you, are you kidding me? Um, but but um, you know, 
I love it, John the Baptist, but, uh, but John verse 14 forbade him saying, I have need to be baptized of thee and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus went, uh, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the spirit of God descend like a, a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Um, question, why was Jesus baptized? I've got a few reasons we'll go over here and you can jot them down. Number one, I think, and probably the least of the most important, but it is, it is here. He affirms John the Baptist's ministry, signing on to what J John the Baptist was doing and what he was saying. Repentance in the kingdom of God, Jesus is affirming John the Baptist. Number two, reason why Jesus was baptized, to identify with us personally. Uh, like, like Jesus said, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness as an example of what a believer should do. And if you're not a baptized Christian, you've, you've missed something that's so important. Well, Brett, uh, I don't believe that baptism is the work that saves you. Well, I agree with you. By the way, there's some churches and denominations say, unless you're baptized, you're not going to heaven. I don't agree with that for just one simple reason, and it gets more intense than this. We could argue this, but um, the, the thief on the cross, Jesus didn't say, hold on, let's get baptized, then you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, nope, he just said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And baptism is a work of the flesh. Even though it is a good work, something we're supposed to do, I think baptism is something you do to be obedient to God, but it's not something you do, hopefully, to save your soul from hell. That's an important thing. The only thing that saves is Salvation by grace, through faith, not of our works, lest any man should boast. So be careful on this baptism thing. Oh, I, got a, I was baptized as a child, so I must be saved. Nope. Um, some people think that, uh, but it's not true. You gotta be saved by confession with the mouth, belief in the heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God raised him up from the dead. Accepting Christ is what makes you a saved believer. But Jesus does this to fulfill all righteousness. Um, and, and it's a new beginning in your life. It's a mark on your life as a Christian. It's an essential part of your Christian walk. Um, and it's a life changer. Show of hands here. How many of you guys, when you were baptized, knew and to this day know that was a life-changing event in your life? Raise your hands. See, look at that, look, pretty much everybody. So if you've not been baptized, you're missing out. Uh, for so many reasons, you gotta do what the Bible says. And if you wanna be baptized, call the church office. We'll let you know when our next baptisms, about every other week, we do a, go down to the river and do it just like J the B. Uh, it's really good. It's a life-changing event. Um, number three reason Jesus was baptized, De a declaration to his father uh, prophetically. Jesus was declaring, if you would, um, that he has submitted to the plan of the father. Jesus would later say, I always do the will of my father. And this is him demonstrating, acknowledging his plan to die, to be buried, and then to resurrect from the grave. Baptism is a figure of that. And Jesus is showing his submission to the Father. Um, but you say, but Brett, isn't Jesus God? Uh, aren't they all one? Yes, it's the Trinity. Well, the Trinity is not even in the Bible. It is here in this story. Number four, the reason Jesus was baptized is it pictures the Trinity. How so? <clears throat> well, did you see it? We've got... Um, all three of the elements. We have Jesus, who's the Son. We have the Holy Spirit, 
um, you know, who comes down in the form of a dove, verse 16. And then we have the Father in heaven's voice from heaven uh, booming down saying, this is my beloved son and I'm well pleased. We see all three parts of the Trinity all at once right here. Um, all three in one. The mystery of the Trinity is just that. It's a mystery. Uh, great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifested in the flesh um, and anointed by the Holy Spirit. Paul told that to uh, young Timothy. So we, we have the, the picture of the Trinity, important doctrine. <clears throat> um, and uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to pin that one down, but I, I'm okay with that. Because like we talked about before, um, if God were small enough to figure it out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. Um, so yes, the Bible teaches God uh, in three parts or uh, one God, but uh, you know, the, the three personages of the Holy Trinity. It's interesting in Genesis chapter one, um, we read about uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's like one of the most famous passages in the Bible, right? Because the first verse. But the word that's operative there that you should know is the word God. Um, it's a word that implies the Trinity. Um, because the word for God typically would be El. Uh, that's the, the word God in the Hebrew Bible. But the word for God here in this scripture is uh, the word Elohim. Um, and the reason that's important is if you were to say God, being singular, you'd say El. If you were to say God's like two, you'd say Elah or Eloah. Um, and then if you were to say three or more, <laughs> you would say Elohim. Uh, the word El is what you'd say for singular. So in, in Genesis 1.1, we have this idea that it's in the beginning, God, Elohim, plural. Why would there be three? Um, the answer, Jesus was there. And we just saw that from, from what our text told us, that Jesus was there at creation. Um, Genesis 1.26, uh, same chapter says, and God said, let us make man in our image. Who's the we and the us there in that sentence? The answer is the Holy Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all three are, at part, are there at creation. After the likenesses, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, over the earth, and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the mystery of the Trinity, that's, that's something that's so important. By the way, that's where Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism departs from Christianity, is they don't believe in the, the Trinity, which is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Um, we'll get more into that as we get uh, further into Matthew's gospel. Um, now, one thing I gotta say, there's a link between baptism and the Holy Spirit coming upon your life. Even as Jesus was baptized, we have the, the dove landing on him and the, uh, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And one thing you need to know about baptism, that's one of the things I've noticed, that that's a, a entry point for the Holy Spirit to be in you. Once you get saved, once you get baptized, there's something about a link between, I don't know exactly what it is, but there's a link between the spirit moving in your life and water baptism. Jesus didn't do a miracle, didn't raise the dead, didn't change water into wine until after he was baptized. Um, there's something about that. And he could have done all that before that, you know, technically, but he did it to fulfill all righteousness. Do you ever feel like your, um, your life is a little dry and lacks power of God? Um, if you've not been baptized, one of the things you need to do is be baptized and say, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Um, now, by the way, um, this is kind of important. Uh, in fact, why don't you, uh, you can kind of, uh, you can kind of flip over there real quick. Boy, I'm running out of time. This is, I was gonna go further today. Uh, in Acts chapter 18, this is kind of an important thing because if you recall, as we're turning to Acts chapter 18, remember in our, in our text, John the Baptist 
made a reference that people didn't really think of or remember. He said, I baptize you with water, but Jesus is gonna come and baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And, and what did that mean? And what, what was the difference between John's baptism versus Jesus? Well, this is where that story kind of picks up. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. It says, and a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in scriptures, came to Ephesus. Uh, this man was instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. That is repentance and the kingdom of God you know, is coming. That's all that this guy knew, but he was preaching his heart out, preaching John's baptism. And verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom uh, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded him the way of God more perfectly. Now, don't you love this? Aquila and Priscilla are great heroes of the Bible, this, this dynamic duo, this husband and wife team. Um, what I love about this is you, you've got this guy, Apollos, and we kind of realize he was a dialed in dude. Paulus is kind of the, the Bible teacher that everybody loved and thought, oh, that was the guy. But Aquila and Priscilla realized he doesn't have the whole story about Jesus. He's preaching the baptism of John. So what do they do? Do they stand up in the sanctuary of the church and say, Apollos, you are not preaching the full word of God. Nope. They pull him say, hey, Apollos, come over here. There's more to what you're saying here. They, they do it. I love how they do it gently and covertly. They pull him aside, uh, you know, um, and they gave the way of God more perfectly. They taught him. Verse 27, when he was disposed to pass to Achaia, the brother, uh, brethren wrote, exhorting disciples to receive him, whom, uh, when he was come, helped them uh, much with, and they believed through grace, for he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly showing the, by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 19, chapter 19, verse one. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, finding certain disciples. And he said unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be a Holy Ghost. <laughs> Does that feel like, some of you feel like that? You know, you're, you're, maybe if you're new to the Bible, don't feel bad. These guys are like that. What, you mean there's a thing called the Holy Ghost? Yep. Um, and verse three, and he said unto them, unto what then were you baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. Then Paul and John verily baptized um, with the baptism of repentance saying unto the people that they should be believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. You see, the, the problem was these people were still doing the same thing, just repentance and wanting to do better, be better, uh, repentance and knowing the kingdom of God's coming, but that's not really what they needed. After Jesus came, died on the cross and rose from the grave, baptism was much, much more than what John was teaching and talking about. It was a baptism knowing that our dead sins are left in the river and we're brought up a new creature in Christ. Without Christ, there's none of that. So these guys were new, like young believers in God, but they hadn't really heard the full story. This is the transition right here where we see the, the people of God starting to kind of go, oh man, we need to know it's all about Jesus. It's not just about doing better, being better. That was the Old Testament way but now it's about knowing the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We're seeing this transition. That's why John the Baptist said, my baptism is of repentance with water, but when Jesus comes, he's gonna give you a whole different deal. And so we read about that. Um, well, back to Matthew chapter th uh, three. Um, so um, uh, by the way, um, in verse 11, uh, that's where John the Baptist said, indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me, 
uh, it's gonna baptize you with the Holy Ghost. That's, that's where that difference is. Well, in verses 12, uh, all the way through uh, the verse uh, um, 16, uh, the prophecy um, uh, um, that Jesus, or pardon me, that Jesus would get baptized, I should say the fact that he did this is all seen right there. And we're gonna get into this more um, and why it was different, why baptism was different. We're gonna get into that more. But I love how it says in verse 17, lo, a voice from heaven came saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I love how God affirms Jesus right here. We talked about this last Sunday. Uh, as we looked at chapter four, verses one through 11, as uh, we know that Satan would question, if you're really the son of God, well, that was confirmed when Jesus was baptized and we saw that. I was planning at least on finishing chapter four uh, tonight, but I think we're out of time. So we'll pick it up there, chapter four, verse one, next week. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this passage. Help us to understand the scriptures more and more. Lord, I, I see all the little dots connected and the things that you tell us that make perfect sense when we read your whole word. So help us, Lord, help your congregation to know your scriptures well, Lord, and help us to retain the things we've heard. Um, Lord, give earnest heed, like it says there in Hebrews 1, lest at any time we forget those things. So give us sharp minds, bless these, your people, may good fruit come from this study. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.